Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors writing in all genres, fiction and nonfiction alike. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with Doug Wilhelm, the editor of China in Another Time, a personal story by Blair Malcolm Lintilhack, published by Rootstock Publishing, the sponsor of today's podcast. Doug, would you mind starting us off with a brief excerpt from the book? Sure, Lenny. So this is from late in the book. It is a segment that, that describes the night in 1949 when the Communist Party won the battle for Shanghai, which is、uh, China's largest and、uh, wealthiest city. So this was the night, basically, when the Communists won China.、Uh, Claire is there. Her husband is a British businessman for a.、Uh, An executive for a chemical company in Shanghai, and they have one son, Phil, who's nine years old. So here you go. Two days later, on the morning of the twenty-fourth of May, nineteen forty-nine, Lynn went to the office as usual. At about two p.m., I heard shooting in the distance, small arms fire. Very quickly, it came closer till the bullets were whining past our open windows. I phoned Lynn to let him know what was happening, suggesting that if he was planning to come home, he had better come quickly. He might have trouble getting through even now. After warning me not to leave the house, Lynn set out across the seven miles of city streets that separated the office from our compound. Soon, one of the company's big trucks arrived, bringing all the men, including Lynn, with the news that the British consulate had just informed him that communist troops had quietly taken and were now occupying our carefully equipped and provisioned camp down on the riverfront. All night, the shooting around our compound increased in volume, punctuated by large booms that shook the house. We learned later that the booms were bridges being blown up. Lin phoned around, warning all those in his charge: "Stay in your homes. Don't move. Don't go out in the streets. Just lie low." Dragging our mattresses onto the floor of the inside hallway upstairs, we waited out the night with the shooting and firing all around us. By morning, all was quiet. Venturing out of the compound, Lin half expected to find the streets strewn with dead and dying, but all that was to be seen were piles of discarded nationalist uniforms. Presumably, those soldiers were now mingling anonymously with the crowds on the streets. I don't mean to say they weren't brave soldiers; they just didn't have anything to fight for, and they weren't supported by anything. All those pill boxes, tank traps, and stockades—they were never used. By that afternoon, nationalist planes were flying low over the city, machine gunning the streets that were crowded with civilians. Suddenly, I heard one coming in low, directly over our house. When I looked out, there, standing in the middle of the lawn, was Philip, fascinated as he watched bullets plowing a furrow down the middle of the lawn, missing him by only a few yards. Horrified, I rushed out, shouting, "Philip! Philip!" He was full of excitement. "Mommy, I can see the fire coming out." I dragged him back in the house. Lynn, now back at the office, phoned to say the nationalists are coming back. They're bombing, and it looks as though they're heading for the power plant. If they hit it, he said, we would be without not only lights but also water. Quickly, he said, draw water, fill the bathtubs, and lock the bathroom doors. I got the tub filled just in time. We were a full week after that without running water, and of course, no electric light. When Lin got home, he organized a crew to dig three emergency wells inside the compound. Shanghai is basically a mud flat, so low lying that water lies just below the surface. The water was foul but useful in the event of fire. After that, no nationalist planes came back. 
It took the communist combat troops five days to complete the occupation of the sprawling city. There were small pockets of resistance and a lot of small arms fire all around us. But in the end, the troops just walked in. Thanks, Doug. So to put that in sort of broader context, can you tell our audience just a little bit about Claire, the author? Yeah, Claire was, by the way, Claire... Uh, died in 1984. She was born just 10 days before the turn of the 20th century in rural China. Her dad was a Canadian medical missionary, a doctor, who spent his, pretty much his whole career in China serving the Chinese people. So her parents were Canadian, but she never lived in Canada, She, except for the World War II years when she was evacuated to the U.S. while her husband was interned by the Japanese in Shanghai. Claire lived in China from 1899 to 1950. She was a nurse. Uh, she spoke fluent Chinese. She traveled up and down the country through the 20s and 30s, which was an incredibly turbulent, violent time in Chinese uh, modern history. And she saw a lot of what the country went through uh, from the years between its its uh, nationalist revolution in 1911, when they threw overthrew the last dynasty, to the first year of communist rule in 1949 to 1950, after which they finally left. So she had an amazing perspective. And, uh, and she, she laid in her life in 1984, after her husband has pa- had passed away and she was living in Vermont, she decided she wanted her son to know her story. So she wrote an unpublished memoir, uh, typed it out on a Smith Corona typewriter in her living room, and recorded 15 hours of storytelling about China on a home recorder. And all that, after she passed away in 84, sat in a closet until I got involved. I'm a freelance writer in Vermont. I got involved with the foundation that Claire created, which is still active in Vermont, family foundation called the Lindelac Foundation. And uh, so her son, Phil, who is now a uh, longtime uh, plant biology professor at the University of Vermont, asked me to take a look at this material. And I saw a book in it. And uh, he said, go ahead, put it together. So that's kind of the story behind the whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about what the process of editing it was like? And you have her written words, you have her spoken words. There were also uh, photographs in the book. So what was it like pulling it all together and, uh, I guess, um, selecting how to present it? Right. Well, Claire, I could see right away, reading her manuscript and listening to her CDs, had a, a, a distinctive voice. She was very observant, very wry. She had a great sense of humor. She was very perceptive about people and very, very candid about both the, uh, the Western kind of colonial presence that she saw and the China, the Chinese people that she knew. So she was a great voice, and kind of neither Western nor Eastern, really a unique window into the making of China, I thought. So the process was that uh, we had her unpublished manuscript as a Word file, and we got the 15 hours of recordings transcribed. So I had all this material, and I set about uh, selecting and weaving together uh, her words into into the story uh, of her life from 1899 to 1950. Um, And uh, I also wrote a number of short historical sidebars, uh, basically telling the general reader what was the Republican Revolution of 1911, why did the Communist Party win the battle for China in 1949, you know, that sort of thing. So that a a regular reader, somebody like me, I didn't really know much about China when I started this. Uh, You could come to this book and you could learn and understand the basics of what Claire was describing. Um, And what Claire also left behind was about 12 
photo albums from both her husband's and her uh, her own side of the family from China dating to the 1890s. So we had this amazing photographic resource. And uh, I set about then researching um, and found a university in England that has amassed about 10,000 photos, mostly from other family collections of uh, Western people who lived in China in the early 20th century. So I had an amazing, uh, really rich photographic resource to draw from. And we have about 160 images in this book. So it's, it's really something to look at and read. So, Doug, you spoke about coming to the book with, um, see if I can be diplomatic about it, let's say a superficial knowledge of China in the first half of the 20th century. What surprised you the most as you, as you read her recollections and what her experiences were? Well, what surprised me the most was, first of all, uh, the, the, the Western presence in China was a really unique one that I didn't really understand. You think about colonization as, for example, uh, you know, England in India. In, Britain ran India for a couple hundred years. That was their colony. Um, but in China, it was this collection of what was called treaty ports up and down the coast where Western powers in Japan would go in there and say, we're now going to do business in this port. Uh, your laws will no longer apply. Our gunboats are offshore. Uh, so that's that. And the Chinese Chinese didn't really have a navy, so they, they had to agree. So it was this weird hodgepodge of about 90 plus treaty ports where Chinese laws did not apply and Westerners could basically trade, do business and do what they wanted. And that was a, I never knew that that was how the Chinese were impacted by Western people in the 20th century. And that was a big part of what they had to throw off when they were trying to become their own modern nation. That, that was something I, I, I didn't know anything about. In the book early on, uh, she writes that, uh, the Chinese people have always loved America, and she obviously wrote this a while ago. And I, I guess I'll, I'll qualify this by saying that I know it's a little bit unfair to speculate, but is there something about China today, 2019, that you think that would be the most startling to her, given, given her experience there over 50 years? Well, she saw the beginning of communist rule, and her, her account of it is really interesting because she saw what the Chinese, the Communist Party was trying to do in, in sort of uh, scrapping and, and throwing out centuries of traditions uh, that were really keeping Chinese society down. For example, uh, they issued orders that Chinese people had to kill all the rats because uh, the rats were eating you know, a huge part of the grain supply and there were constantly famines. Well, the, Ch the Chinese tradition was to view animals as uh, potentially the souls of your ancestors. So uh, you, know, you wouldn't kill anything. So they had to, they had to overturn an awful lot of tradition. Um, I think Claire would be really surprised to see what became of communist rule in China. I don't know that anybody could have predicted back in 1949 and 50 uh, that China would become this sort of hybrid communist capitalist society that today is becoming, you know, potentially the most powerful country in the world. I don't know that she could have predicted that. She did predict and does predict in the book that China once, there's a line in the book that says, once she has gotten her feet under her, China won't stop. You know, once she starts moving into the modern world on her own terms, there's going to be no stopping her. So would she have been surprised? I don't know. But I don't think she could have predicted the shape of China today. What do you think the hardest period of her life in China was? 
Well, the hardest period was when she was actually not in China. She was evacuated during World War II while her husband was imprisoned by the Japanese, and that was very difficult for her. But um, within China, um, she uh, Claire was a, a private duty nurse during the 1920s and 30s. She traveled by herself. She was a very intrepid soul. She didn't get married until her late 30s, and uh, she was she traveled almost always alone. Uh, always the only woman on, on on these trade or freighter boats that were small passenger boats that would travel up and down the Chinese coast. So she had a lot of adventures. Uh, it was a challenging time for her because she worked almost around the clock. She'd be the only person. She was the only private duty nurse doing this work, traveling up and down the coast. She served mainly uh, Western families, but she also saw Chinese people when they needed her. So she basically barely ever got any sleep. And, and uh, hardly ever earned any money. She didn't really know what she should be paid. She just did these jobs. So I think she would have said that it was a great time, but it was also a really exhausting uh, time in her life. So you mentioned that there were photo albums. I'm wondering what other sources you think or know that she used when she was writing her memoir herself, and uh, as well as sort of the oral recordings were there. Letters that she was relying on were there sort of... You know, personal diaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She had some personal diaries. Her her son Phil has uh, saved them, and I went through them. Uh, and she, uh, I, I imagine, she had letters, but I don't. I didn't see those. I, I, what happened with uh, with uh, Claire and her husband Lynn was when they had to finally leave China. They had to leave behind most of what they basically had to slip out of their home. Uh, almost under cover of night because it was very difficult to get out. And uh, had they uh, had they had people known what they were doing, they might not have gotten out. So they had to leave a, a fully furnished house with basically everything they owned. So I think she did. Uh, I'm, I'm sure she did have a lot more journals and letters than she had once she got to America. So most of her recollection, as far as I can tell, came from this kind of amazing memory that she had for people and stories and uh, and, and the adventures and experiences she had. So you had a lot of raw material to sort of draw upon. What was the most challenging thing for you in terms of transforming it and sort of, you know, editing it into, you know, a coherent narrative of sort of a reasonable length? Uh, with sort of the right amount of detail. Well, I have to say, I've, I've often said this is the best project I've ever had and probably ever will have. So um, it was challenging, but boy, it was fun. I mean, she's a really fun person to be with. She has a great spirit. She's got a sense of humor. So I enjoyed the work a lot. It was uh, fairly laborious, you know, and, and a lot of the choices I had to make were what to put in and what to, what to leave out because... You know, she talked more about her own family stuff than the general reader would want to follow. At the same time, the main character in the book is Claire. And, you know, she grows up, she has adventures, she becomes a nurse, she sees all these things. She falls in love but doesn't want to get married, doesn't want to give up her career. Finally, finally agrees to get married. They have a child and then the World War II breaks out. So um, uh, there was a lot of story to tell. And uh, I really enjoyed sort of following it along. But the, the, uh, the challenge was to make it readable for the general reader. And in a lot of ways, to me, the most important character in the book is China. You know, Claire's story is fun and interesting, but if she didn't have this incredible uh, you know, window into China and all that it went through, her story wouldn't really be all that 
attractive to a general reader, but because of what she's, the context of what she's talking about, um, you know, you could you learn so much about how China uh, became its this modern nation and what it went through to become its own type of modern nation. So I, I found it really fascinating, and I just loved the work. Uh, but the challenge was to make it a good narrative, make it a good story, and uh, not bog the reader down in what you don't want to read, but also keep in enough detail that, you know, you follow her life and you're interested in her life as well as learning about China. Before getting into the book, you have an editor's note in which you talk about your decision to keep in Claire's own words, even when they included certain terms that might be viewed as offensive today. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your, your process and, and how you came to that decision. Yeah. Well, there's two words, especially. One is coolie. Um, coolie is a word for a laborer that was in general use among Westerners in China and I imagine among Chinese people as well. So it, it, essentially to them, it just meant a working person, whether it was a rickshaw driver, household uh, employee, uh, you know, and every household, whether Western or, or middle class Chinese, had servants. Because, for example, it was a full time job just to purify the water for a family uh, in those days. So, you, you know, you had to have a cook, you had to have a water cooling and, and you know, this and that. So they had servants, even though they weren't wealthy. Her, her dad was a medical missionary. They didn't really have any money to speak of. But they had a household staff, and they would refer to the water coolie. They would refer to the uh, garden coolie. So the word coolie, though, today has a lot of negative connotation because it also is it, you know, taken to be a derogatory term for a, an Asian person, a coolie. And uh, that especially kind of grew up uh, when... when uh, Asian people, Chinese people were laborers in the Caribbean, laborers in North America. Like in the 19th century, a coolie became, I wouldn't say like the N-word, but it was a negative term. Uh, so we really debated, what, what do we do? Do we take the word out? Do we substitute it with laborer? And I tried that, but it didn't seem true to what, you know, Claire is a creature of her time, and she's reflecting the attitudes of her time. I don't think there was anything racist about Claire, but there was a lot that was racist about her time. So we decided in the end that we needed to be true to the vocabulary that she would have used. Another one that's very problematic is the word boy. In, in a foreign household in China, the, the head butler, now the head of the household staff was called number one boy. And that is just the term they use. So again, not an easy one to keep. But uh, we decided, that, again, that you know, history is less valuable if you water it down. Uh, if you try to make it really inoffensive, you don't necessarily portray the time as it was. And uh, we felt that, that one of the great values of this book is that it portrays the time just as it was. She's very honest. So we decided with an editor's note that explained our reasoning that we would keep these terms and, uh, and hope that people kind of got it, that this is what we were trying to do. And, and finally, who chose the epigraph from the book, which is a quote from Claire, uh, quote, the ultimate principle of life is love. Uh, well, I did. I went through her journals. Uh, we were looking for something to open the book, uh, and uh, uh, I found this and, and ran it by Phil, her son, who is, as I mentioned, a plant biology professor at the University of Vermont, and uh, um, and we both felt that it just captured Claire. She was somebody who, she wasn't political, she wasn't ideological, she was a nurse, she was a healthcare worker, and uh, and, you know, people and, and helping people, serving people, she really genuinely was that kind of person. So we just felt that this expressed who she was and how she approached her life. 
Great. Well, thank you, Doug. The book, again, is China in Another Time, A Personal Story from Rootstock Publishing. Thank you, audience, for listening, and please join us again soon for another LitCast.